All right, well, hey, good morning, guys. How are you? Again, no response. I won't take it personally. I'll just assume. Yeah, yeah. I give you a... I give you props. This is Labor Day and you came to church. That either means you're really holy or uh, you could not figure out anything better to do for the weekend. So I'm so glad that you came today. It has been a rough week here. Um, I'll be straight up honest with that. It has been a tough week, uh, mostly because Garrett has been gone. Uh, Garrett, if you didn't know, is one of our, the only other pastor that we have on staff and he has been uh, passing a kidney stone. Um, and so don't, no, no, no. He made a lot more work for me. He was supposed to be speaking. <laughs> he talked a lot about how he was like, you know, that when he did a wedding and he passed out and now to get out of speaking, he's like passing a stone to get out. And so I, um, he was gracious enough to bring it in. I was really impressed. Uh, he is, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I just found this out in the parking lot. So, uh, <laughs> But, uh, dude, he's working on his, uh, his kid's rock collection, and so that's really cool. So um, he's back, but the deal was he was supposed to speak today, and so that means that I'm up. So, you guys, I'm going to be chatting today. He showed up, so Garrett, where are you? I thought I heard your voice. Uh, oh, you're in the back. So welcome back, man. I'm so glad he surprised and show up. So um, we're in a series. We're in the second part of a series that we're calling Living Missionally. Uh, that's a phrase we've been saying a lot around here. The idea behind it is simple. It is that we are intentionally to be a light into our communities or a light into this dark world. We talked about that kind of on a theoretical um, aspect last week. Today, what I would like to do is get very, very practical about what does it mean to not just go to church, but to be the church. And in order to put us in the mindset of what we are gonna talk about today, what I'd like to do is I'd like to show a very quick video, just a quick little um, video on some heartbreaking stats. So here you are, go ahead and check this out. I don't know about you, but uh, when I watch that and I read those stats and I, um, I think about it, I'll tell you what, what I truly do is I, um, I want to say I get compassionate. I would love that to be the case, but what I really feel like I kind of do is I get overwhelmed, you know, overwhelmed and, and maybe even a little bit frustrated because everywhere you look, if you're to turn on the news, there's national disasters, there's a divorce rate, it's 50% for Christians, non-Christians, there's no difference, unfortunately. We've got uh, 
drug trafficking, we've got sex trafficking, we've got poverty. I don't know if you've ever had the blessing to be able to go overseas on a mission trip to a third world country. Uh, when you go there, it's, it's, it's both, I mean, what it does, I would say, is it gloriously wrecks you for the rest of your life. You're like, it opens your eyes and, and, and you're just, you're overwhelmed by the poverty and by the starvation and the struggle that's there. And, and then you come back home and if you were to come back home now into the political arena that we are in and our nation is so divided um, where literally the right hand is yelling at the left hand and we have mother against daughter and father against son. And if you jump online and jump onto Facebook, all these trolls that are just like screaming at each other and causing and picking fights, and there's violence that happened in Charlottesville, or Charlottesville just a little while ago, like just literally earlier this month. I mean, the fact that the KKK is on the news to me just seems ridiculous. That seems like, I mean, we've got a long ways to go when it comes to racial equality, but I mean, it feels like we're going backwards in time if we're talking about the KKK. Um, and then we're talking about the flooding in Houston, and there are people in Houston who lost everything. And I mean, when I say everything, um, I don't mean that they lost all their possessions. I mean that they lost family members. And so uh, that's, losing, that's losing a lot. Uh, when, you, when you lose a mom or you lose a dad or you lose a kid, and that's all over the news. That's all over the place. And you can't get away from it. And then you compound that because it's overwhelming. You compound that with the personal tragedy that we all kind of see in our areas, you know, um, just in our neighborhoods. We see our neighbors that are broken. We see families that are torn apart. We see um, friends walking through divorce. We got diagnosis of cancer. We've got kids who are sick. We got kids who are, um, you know, parents with prodigal kids right, where then you throw in some mental health issues on the top of that or mental illness on top of that, and you've got people who are losing their jobs, they're losing their homes, they're, they're just, they're losing hope, right? And, uh, and it's, it's literally overwhelming. It's just overwhelming. It's coming in nonstop. And if, just for a second, just, I mean, no sympathy here, but put yourself in the shoes, my shoes for a second. My job is at the church, and when you open a church or you start a church, it's like opening a hospital, and literally it's the sick and the hurting they come in. And so every single day, it's just the nature of church work. I'm always a part, or I'm, I'm connected to somebody's tragedy, Somebody's cancer, somebody's hospital visit. I mean, even our very own assistant, Allison, who works here, she just went back home because her, you know, her parents are on hospice, you know, and then you got Garrett, you know, doing what he does. <laughs> so being a stoner, I guess. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know. And I make light of it, truly. I'm only making light of it because the pain is so flipping overwhelming, don't you think? I mean, it's truly overwhelming. I get overwhelmed. And here's the tension, because I get frustrated because I can't fix it. I like to fix things, right? And I can't solve it. And I can't really make a dent in it if I give it a shot. I can't solve world hunger, and you can't either. You may be better equipped than I am. You may have more money to throw at it than I do. I'm, in fact, I'm a pastor, so I'm pretty sure that you have more money to throw at it than I do. But the deal is you can't fix it as an individual. I cannot fix it. Neither of us can do it. And so what do we do with all this information, with all this pain, all this stuff that's coming in? What do we do? And there's basically two options that people turn to. One is they'll dive right into it. 
right? They're just going to throw themselves in. They're going to go crazy, and they're going to help every single person they can at the expense of even their own health. But the truth is, you could work, 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 and you're barely going to make a dent in all the pain that's inside of the world. We can't fix it. We can't solve it. So you could dive on in, or you could take the other alternative, which is you could dismiss it, right? You could just say, I'm going to turn off my TV, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to flip on the radio. I'm not going to swipe my phone. I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to go back to work, and I'm just going to quit reading the news. But I'm a Christian, and I can't ignore it. We can't ignore it. We shouldn't ignore it. We're not supposed to ignore it. But part of the problem is... Uh, just the amount of awareness that we have that we have not had in the past. So, I mean, we, are, we have so much access to so much information. I believe like a long time ago, maybe my parents' day or definitely my grandparents' day, the only poverty that they would see would be the poverty that would be in their backyard or their neighbors or something like that. Or the only divorce would be the divorce that they knew in their family or very close friends. If there was a national disaster, you would never hear about it because the national disaster, the only ones you were cared about were the ones that were in your county or your city or your town. And so they didn't know as much and, and there wasn't as much information. And so I think there was a probably, uh, it was easier maybe, I'm just guessing, to manage the struggle in your home, in your city, in your town, and maybe even in our country we could have managed it just a little bit better. But right now, we cannot put our head in the ground because every second you turn on the television, you f- drive and you turn on the radio, if you open your phone, you are going to see more and more and more pain just coming and coming and coming, and you can't shut it off, and we shouldn't shut it off because we're Christians. So the big question goes, what can we do? Like, truly, what can we do as Christians Right? We're supposed to live missionally. That's our job. That's what Pastor Jake is asking us to do is to live missionally. But it's absolutely overwhelming. We cannot solve it. But at the same time, we cannot ignore it. And so if you're here today and you're like, oh man, that, if you can identify with anything that I just said, if, you, if that stirs something up inside of you, if that, if that brings a charge to you, like, oh man, what do we do? I'm glad you're here because this is exactly what we are going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the amount of information that comes in, the amount of pain that's out in the world, and how we should respond as Christians, how we should live missionally. We should live that out. And so I'm going to give you the game plan, kind of the layout for the talk this morning. Here's how it's going to go. I'm going to talk about a passage. We're going to look at a passage. Um, where Paul kind of gives us a clue, a little peek into this idea. Then I want to uh, look at a principle that I have tried to live my life by. And then I want to tell you a story about how this played out inside of my life. And so let's start with the passage, right? Let's, let's jump in there. Galatians 6. If you want, if you have a Bible, you could turn there. Galatians 6. Otherwise, it's on the screen. Uh, We're looking at the book. The book of Galatians is actually not really a book. It's actually a letter that was originally written by a guy named Paul or the Apostle Paul. And he was writing intentionally to a group of Christians. And so inside this book of Galatians, there's a lot of different um, things that he talks about. But there's this little chunk. There's these few sentences that he sort of centers around kind of what I would say maybe is our social responsibility when it comes to the overwhelming needs that are around us. And so Galatians chapter 6. 6, verse 9, here's what it says. It says, let us, and again, us is the church. Let us, 
not become weary in doing good. Key words there, doing good. And the good that he's talking about in this context is general good. It's the broad context to be good morally, to be good ethically, to be good to others. And I love this. I love that Paul actually addresses and he acknowledges our tendency. And what is our tendency? To get tired of doing good, to wear out. And so he just goes straight on that. He jumps right into that. We get tired, we get weary, we get worn out to do good. And Paul says, let us not become weary in doing good. And he continues, for at the proper time, you will, we- you will weep, you might weep, okay? But you will also reap a harvest if, and that's a pretty big word there, if we do not give up. If we do not give up. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, I get it, I understand it, I understand the weariness that comes from caring, I understand the weariness that comes from like carrying other people's burdens, carrying their weight, carrying this overload of information, I get that, but what he's begging and he's saying, he's saying, please do not disengage. He says, don't put your hand, you cannot dismiss it, you are Christians, you cannot dismiss it. And so verse 10, he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, and that word opportunity is um, it's a little Greek word that means time. And so for some of you, are like, um, as we have opportunity or as we have time, you're thinking, oh, I'm off the hook. I got no time, right? No, no, no. You got to keep reading in here. That's not the case. As we have time, let us, and here's the key words again, do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying, as you consider the time that you have in your life, your margin, your pace, your priorities, as you, as you like consider those things, remember that you actually have a responsibility to respond. You have, in his words, a biblical responsibility to do good. And that's our job as Christians. We are to do good. And so if um, there's a bunch of passages that talk about this throughout the Bible. In fact, because we're in church, I'm going to read a few of them right now. I'm literally just going to go straight through a bunch of passages that have to do with this topic of doing good. And so Titus 2, it says this. Uh, Paul says again, he being Jesus, gave his life to, to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people. And then what Paul does is he describes what God's very own people should look like. Here's what they should look like. They should be totally committed to what? To doing good deeds. 1 Timothy 6, Paul instructs Timothy. He says, tell them, so that them, remember he's talking in this case as well to the church, tell them or us to use their money, and you're not gonna like this, to do good. He's not saying go buy a new boat and go buy new shoes, go buy one of those little fidget spinners. What he is telling you to do is that you are to use your money to do good. They should be rich. Here's how he's defining what rich is in good works, right? We're supposed to do good things and generous to those in need. Always be ready to share with others. Ephesians 2, this is the famous one. This is the famous verse. For we are God's handiwork, or in other translations say we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to what, here it is again, to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Good works again. Hebrews 10, let us think of ways to motivate one another. There's a one another. We did a whole series on that. To, to, um, to acts 
of love and, there it is again, good works. James 4, if anyone knows, here it is, the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. It all of a sudden got heavy in here. Last week, Matthew 5, this is the verse we, we landed on. It says, no one lights a lamp. Or in second service, if you were here when the lamp didn't light. Nobody tries to light a lamp, okay? And then puts it under a basket. Instead, the lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your what? Let your good deeds shine out for all to see. So that, now this is key. So that when you see that in the Bible, those two little words, it means I'm gonna give you a purpose statement. Here is why. So that, Everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Good works are very important. It's written all throughout God's word, especially in the New Testament. But I need to clarify, because every single time we talk about this, I need this to be, that we, we have to talk about what the purpose of good works are, because it often gets misunderstood. The purpose of doing good works, the purpose of doing good deeds, the purpose of doing good as God has commanded, hear this, is not to earn his love. It is not to earn his love. I am not teaching a works-oriented doctrine here. That is not what we're doing. The purpose of doing good works is to return God love. And the way that we do that is by loving other people. He says, if you love the least of them, you love me. If you do it unto the least of them, you do it unto me. We do good works so that people can see the love of God on a practical level. Jesus is not here physically on the planet. Therefore, he's left us in his absence to show God's love, to show his practical love to people. Last week, I said this phrase. It's a great phrase. We do good works to earn goodwill to share good news. That's what it is. We do good works to share goodwill or to earn goodwill to share good news. And so let's get back to our original question, okay? Back to the original question, what do we do? Because as Christians, it is absolutely overwhelming. We cannot solve it. We cannot ignore it. But we have a responsibility to respond. We have a responsibility to do good. And so that brings us to the principle, which I think answers this question. And here's the principle, and I completely ripped it off from one of the greatest pastors I've ever met. His name's Andy Stanley, all right? This is what he said, and I have tried to live by my life by this statement, by this phrase. Here's what it is. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one person what you wish you could do for every single person. And I think the reason that I like this phrase, I mean, think about this. I, I love this phrase. The reason I think I like it is because it flies in the face of a statement that we heard a thousand times as a kid, right? And you heard it too, and I heard it. And then as a kid, it made us so angry. But yet as an adult, right, we f- I find that we're saying this and we've got to stop saying this statement. See, what we would do is we would ask like our teacher and we would say, hey, teacher, can I do this? And your teacher would say, oh, um, you see, if I let you do this, then I'm going to have to let everybody else do this. You know, you go up to your coach and you say, coach, can I have this? And the coach would say, well, 
I, I can't give it to you because if I give it to you, then I have to give it to everyone else. If you go to your mom and your mom would say, hey, I, like, hey, I want to go there, mom. And your mom would say, well, you can't go there because if you go there, everyone else has to go there. It is the most ridiculous phrase on the planet. Truly, it's not even rational. It doesn't make sense. I mean, you agree with me on that because you thought the same thing when you heard it as a kid. You would say, hey, you know, coach, can I go there? And you said, the coach would say, um, no, you can't go there because if I let you go there, then everybody else has to go there. And you thought, I don't think so, coach. Like, you could just let me go, right? Like, just between you and me. I, I mean, I won't tell anybody, and you won't tell anybody. I mean, I feel like this is a good plan. I will be the exception, coach. I volunteered to be the exception. And, and we had this thought, and it's, I mean, I don't know where it came from, that it all has to be fair. I don't know who said it. I can tell you this. It's not biblical. It's absolutely not biblical, Right? And so, and here's what's happened with that phrase that we learned as a kid and we say as parents, right? It's this, is that we have brought that philosophy into our adult life. And so when something comes up, I believe sometimes we use this as an excuse. Because we can't do for everyone, we choose to do for no one. And we use it as an excuse because I can't do it for everyone because I can't solve everybody's problem. I'm not even going to start. I'm going to do it for no one. And if you're a Christian, if you love Jesus, if you want to do good works like he asks us to do to love him back, you can't say that. You can't crawl into a hole. You cannot hide. You have a responsibility to do good. And I think the solution is to do for one what you wish you could do for someone, to do for everyone. There was a, when I was a youth pastor, there was a student named Matt, and Matt was going through some hard times, and Matt, um, he, he, was, he was really struggling for, for years, and eventually Matt came up to me, and he's like, hey, hey, Jake, would you mind mentoring me? And, and here's the deal. I was a youth pastor of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids. I do not have the capacity to literally mentor all of those kids. It's impossible and so I would think, well, I'm not going to do it. If I mentor for one, then I can't mentor them all, and I don't want it to be unfair. I don't want to do that. And so, um, but when it came to Matt, and he asked me in, in his circumstances, I remember thinking, you know what? There was this prompting, this was nudging, like maybe give that a shot. And, and so, um, truly, so I said, yeah, you know what, Matt, I will mentor you. And I remember going back to my team and letting them know that I'm going to be mentoring Matt. And they're like, oh, I don't know if you should do that because then everybody else is going to want to be mentored by you at that point in time. And I even had parents come up to me and say, will you personally mentor my kid? And I said, no, right? But I'm like, but um, you're mentoring Matt, right? You, 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 but you're not going to mentor my kid? Exactly. It's exactly. And they're like, well, that's not fair. And so just newsflash for you. Never try to be fair. Let's get rid of fair. There's no more fair. We don't need to be fair. God's not fair. Your mama's not fair. Your daddy definitely wasn't fair. All right? Life is not fair. Let's take fair. Let's throw it out the window. Let's forget all about fair because it's not about being fair. It's about doing good. Amen? Amen. It is. And so please catch this. If you try to be fair when it comes to the pain in the world, you won't do anything for anyone. You won't do anything for anyone because you can't do everything for everybody. It's impossible. And so you knew it as a kid when you heard the phrase that it wasn't true, and so don't buy into it as an adult. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. 
one of my favorite church stories growing up. Um, it was a story of this guy, and he was walking along this beach. And don't worry, it's not, um, it's not footprints in the sand, okay? So there was this guy who was walking on the beach early one morning, and the tide was way out. And you may have heard this story, and there were starfish all over the place. It, the tide went way, way out, and there's thousands upon thousands of starfish, and the sun is starting to beat down, and they're drying up, and they're starting to die. And it's just, it's overwhelming. There were so many of them on the shore, and as the guy is walking along the shore, he sees this kid way up in the distance, and this kid is frantically picking up things off the ground and throwing them into the water. And as he got closer, he realized that this kid was picking up starfish, and he was throwing them back in the water, and he was out of breath, and he was going crazy, and he's picking them up, and he's throwing them in the water. And he grabbed that one, he'd pick it up, and he'd throw it in the water. And the guy literally thought, what the heck are you doing, kid? Right? So he walks up to him, and he's like, kid, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. You can't save them all. You can't make a difference. And the kid just picked up a starfish, and he looked at it, and he looked at the guy, and he looked at the starfish, and he's like, you know what? I probably can't make a difference in all of them, but I bet you it makes a difference to this one. And he took the starfish, and he threw it back in the water, and he kept on throwing them back in the water one at a time. And he didn't get all the starfish, but he did help some. And every time I've heard that story told, I've heard it told that way and it stops, but I think the story would be even better as if that guy, that old man, started picking up starfish and throwing them in one at a time. And they probably couldn't have cleared the beach, but they would have done for one what they wished they could have done for everyone. And so let me give you a few tips along the way when it comes to this. Some tips on what, it, when, what does it mean to do for one that what you wish you could do for everyone. The first tip is this, go deep, rather than going wide. Go deep rather than going wide. Our tendency is to go wide and not deep. And the reason why is because wide is easier. Wide is a lot easier. As a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor to lots of students, and I had a surface relationship with so many of them. And I realized that I wasn't the one in the ministry that was making the big impact. I would stand up. I was the figurehead. I was the one that made the calls, right? But I wasn't the one that was making the big difference. You know who was making the difference in the students' lives? It was very clear. It was the small group leaders. They were the ones who were on the grounds when a small group, they went deep with the few instead of going wide like I did with everyone. And then I realized my job as a youth pastor, it is to connect on a deep level to these adult leaders. And so that's when our ministry really changed at that point in time. But we need to go deep rather than wide. We can't just have a general concern. We can't just have a general concern for the poor. I'm saying go out and find a couple people that are poor and go deep with them, all right? Go deep, invest into their lives. Second tip is this, go long rather than short term. Go long term rather than short term. This will be a big commitment. It truly will because helping is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. Oftentimes, if you're helping those who are hurting, they're going to take one step forward and then they're going to take two steps back. And then stick with them at that point in time. Don't, don't bail. They're going to take, again, two steps forward and then maybe one step back. And now they're back to where they started if you just did the math, right? Okay? But at one point, they might take three steps. But hopefully, when you're with them, they will progress forward. That's the idea. So go long-term rather than short-term. And the last one, and this is an important one, go time, not just money. 
go time, not just money. And this is hard for Americans because we're rich. And if you don't think we're rich, you're, you're missing the mark here. We're completely rich. And the reason I know that is because you have got change in your ashtray. You have money in a garbage can. That is how you know that we are rich. We are rich as Americans in comparison to the rest of the world. I truly believe it. ACDC was 100% correct when they said, listen to the money talk. Money does talk. But guess what talks louder than money? Time. Time talks louder than money. And I know that to be true because all you have to do is ask any kid whose dad spent all their time at work and they may have bought them the bike or they may have bought them the car and they were absent from their life and that kid doesn't want the car, it doesn't want the bike. They want the time from their dad which is the most valuable thing we have on this planet and so you gotta go time, not just money. And so my prayer is that you would choose, here's, a, here's my prayer, that you would choose the one, the one person, the one group, the one issue, the one need, the one organization, the one grandparent, the one guy, the one whatever, and make a commitment with them to go deep, to go long, and to go time. That is what investing truly looks like, to go deep, to go long, and to go time. That is investing in the one. So the story I want to share is, um, is probably shouldn't share it, and I've said this before, because when you're up here, what you should share when you're up here as a communicator is failure stories, so that you look bad and people laugh at you, and then they feel more endeared to you. I'm going to tell you a time where um, truly I think my wife and I got this one right, okay? Not very often do we get things right, but we got this one right, and it wasn't easy, but we did get this one right. And it centers around a girl named Helena. This is her. And in 2013, um, Helena was a 19-year-old girl. And I found her in my church office shaking and crying and extremely upset. It was me in there, and it was Allison. And, um, and she was super scared because she didn't want to go home. She didn't want to go home because in her home was an abusive situation. Her relationship with her dad in that situation was not good. She was scared to go home. In fact, she had packed all of her stuff out of her room into her car and had drove to the church because she didn't know where else to go. And so she came there, and she was sitting in my office, and, you know, she's like, oh, my gosh, I forgot my socks in the laundry. I got to go back and get my socks. We're like, don't go back. We'll buy you socks, right? We can get socks for you. And so we tried to help meet her need. And so we tried. We really did try to find her a place. We put her in some temporary um, homes of friends that we knew that would care for her for, that, for a few days. But we tried to find more of a permanent type of home because her home wasn't really safe to go back to. And we didn't want to put her back in that environment. And the entire time that this is going through, I had this thought in the back of my head. Every time we couldn't find a home for her to stay in, I realized, you know what? We just moved our girls, or we're wanting to move our girls into the same room. And so we have an extra room at our house. We have an extra place where she could potentially stay, where she could be safe. And so I eventually called my wife. I'll tell you it wasn't a, um, a quick conversation. It took some time, and we had some conversations, and eventually um, Helena decided, and she moved in. 
And she came in and we gave her a room. We found her a mattress. We, uh, we got her a dresser. We painted the dresser together. Um, uh, and we invested in her. We truly did. We invested in her. We decided to go deep. And there was a lot of great things that happened in that situation. There were a lot of firsts for Helena. Like um, Helena was taught how to cook by my wife during this period that she was there. She stayed in our house for about a year and a half. And she taught my wife how to cook. I taught her how to fish. Um, holidays came around, and, um, and we took her to um, go hunt for pumpkins for the first time. She had never had a traditional Christmas. She had never had in her lifetime a Christmas stocking. And so we got her a Christmas stocking, and we told her about Santa Claus, and she didn't believe us because she was 19. Um, <laughs> but we did movie nights, Right? I, I let her know about the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and all the important things in life. She eventually had a crush on Aragon, right? Which I do too, so that's totally okay. She did chores around the house. We invited her truly to be a part of our family. We invited her into our family. And I will tell you, as great as those things were and as wonderful as she was to live with, it was not easy. It was, there was a lot of inconveniences. Trust me, my wife and I, we are introverts. We are very private people. I have a very public job. I should not be a pastor with the, the makeup that I am. It should not be the case because I love the sanctuary of my home. My wife does too. And so when we go home, we need our space to recharge. That's how we operate. And, and, uh, and it's really hard when somebody else is there that's not a member of your family as much as we wanted to invite her into our family. So it was an inconvenience. It was a total inconvenience for me in the sense that we created these crazy rules. Um, one of the rules was is that uh, is for, to live beyond reproach, so there were no questions, um, was I was never in a room alone with Helena. And so if I entered a room and she was in there, then I would leave. Or we would figure it out who was going to be in there. But if we were alone in the house, we were never in the same room. If we were alone, never. We just didn't want that question mark. We didn't want that temptation. I didn't want that temptation. And so I was never alone. It was just very weird to walk into your own living room and then have to walk out of your own living room. Um, but that's the way we did it. And I was, I'm glad we did that. But uh, she left dishes out. Um, she, uh, she left her laundry and the laundry baskets all over the place. Uh, she would eat our food. I remember after Thanksgiving, one of the most glorious things about Thanksgiving is turkey soup the next day. And I remember my wife makes it once a year. Okay, just once a year. And I'm so excited. I worked a hard day. I come home. Can't wait to eat this soup. She ate the whole thinking bowl like it was a big bowl. I don't know what she did with it. But it was all gone, and so, and I still hate her for it. Um, so, I do not let that go. Um, but I mean, those are little things. I got her a job, believe it or not. I got her a job at Overlake, at the church that I worked at. She had a job there, but unfortunately, it didn't work out. And it didn't last for a very long time. And when she left, there were complications that it left me at my job um, in that place for suggesting her. And then the big thing hit Maggie got her diagnosis, and we were broken as a family. And we no longer could give her the care that she needed. And so um, we asked her if she would move out and we tried to help her find up, uh, line up a few places. And we did. We actually lined her up with another place. And she went and lived with these friends of ours. 
But that didn't last very long either. In fact, she moved out like within like, a few, like less than a couple months. And then that friend was frustrated with us for what we had them walk through. And so we had to pull back due to Maggie, um, but she kept moving forward. She truly did. She kept taking faith in her, steps in her faith, steps in her maturity, um, and we would spur for help. She'd ask for advice. And even at one point, she came up and she told us that the time that she spent in our home, that year and a half, she said in that time, she found out who she was as a person. This is her words. She said that she found her identity. She found her identity through the conversations she had while cooking with my wife. She, she found out her worth. She found out her value. And she found out what a family could look like what a model of a family could potentially look like. And we are not perfect. I'm going to tell you that straight up. In our family, in our home, you can ask Helena. We are not perfect in the slightest. But she saw what a real wife looks like to love her husband and what a husband looks like to love, her wife, love his wife, love how to care for our kids. And because we gave her that model, she said that that eventually gave her the courage to meet somebody else and think that she could start a family. And a while back, I sat down with a guy named Michael, who, she, who came up to me, who was a very godly man. He came up to me, and because I had kind of become this father figure to her, he asked me for permission to court her, to date her, and eventually to marry her. And so they got married, and in July of 2016, I got to officiate their wedding. And I got to watch Helena walk down the aisle, and she was escorted by, guess who? Her dad. And they had worked really hard on restoring and that relationship. And I can tell you now that that relationship is in a good place and he has repented of, what he had, of all that he had walked through. And so they have a good relationship in their family now. And now, you know, she is married to a godly man. She has um, been adopted into an amazing family. She has a full-time job. She uh, loves Jesus. She attends here at this church. In fact, she even was started and launched our photography team, and she sings up here every once in a while when we lead worship. And it was a few Sundays ago that I was sitting back there right before I was supposed to come up here and talk, and she was singing. I remember thinking to myself how proud I was of her and the steps that she's taken in her faith, and it was worth it. It's been worth it. We decided to go deep, not wide, as a family. We decided to go long-term, not short-term. It's been a long road with her. We decided to go time over money, although I will say we spent money too, okay? We did for one what we wish we could have done for everyone. I, can't, I can tell you this. Anytime a girl ends up in my office is crying, that doesn't mean you can come and live in our house, Okay? <laughs> That's not going to be the case. You can't just like, oh, man, it's really tough at home. Oh, yeah, well, come live with us, all right? I wouldn't have a wife at that point in time if that was the case. She would be gone. And so we want to do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. And so here's why this is important. is because this fall, catch me on this, this fall, you are going to run into that one, that single mom, that struggling family, that guy in your office, that kid on the outside, that grandparent that is just lonely. And God is going to do like he did to us. He's going to nudge you on the inside. He's going to say, hey, look out, look, look, look. That's your one. That's your one. And in that moment, okay, when that nudging comes on, don't shove it away and say, well, I can't do for them because I can't do for anyone. What you need to do in that moment is you need to embrace it. 
You need to open your eyes. Pay attention. I don't want you to be overwhelmed. I don't want you to hide in a hole. But I do want you to do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And for some of you, you know already who that person is. The entire time I've been talking, every time I said the one, you knew in your mind who that was. You knew in that moment when I said the one, you're like, oh yeah, it's that person. And I want to encourage you to invest into that person. And some of you, you're already investing. You know the one, you know the couple people that you're truly going after and you are truly caring for and you're doing life with and you're investing with. And I want to just encourage you to keep doing, keep going. But for the rest of us, Maybe that's adoption. Truly, I cannot think of a more effective way to do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. It is a lifetime commitment to bring someone into your family. Maybe that's going and visiting a nursing home where people have lost their family and they need a family and they need someone to come on a regular basis to care for them. Maybe that's starting a group. We're going to start groups here. We're going to talk about it next week. But maybe that's starting a group and investing in a small group of people here at this church and a small group of people that are outside of this church. Here's my hope. My hope is that you'd be on the lookout. You would be on the lookout to go long, to go deep, to go time. And here's what I think. If everybody, if everyone did for one what we wish we could do for everyone, I actually think we'd change the world, right? I truly think so. But here's what I know. I think that I know this. If you do for one what you wish you could do for everyone, you will most certainly change somebody's world. And if your experience is like the experience that I have had when we have gone after the one, it will change your world as well. That is my hope coming forth. That is what missional living really looks like. It's not standing on the street corner with a blow, to- a blow horn or a blowtorch and, and <laughs> saying, turn away from the fires of hell, right? And come to Jesus. It is investing in the one. And I know it's overwhelming, but man, we gotta reach out to that one because it'll make a difference to that one. Let's pray.